A Summary View of the Rights of British America Thomas Jefferson, 1774 Resolved that it be an instruction to the said deputies when assembled in general Congress with the deputies from the other states of British America to propose to the said Congress that an humble and dutiful address be presented to His Majesty begging leave to lay before him as Chief Magistrate of the British Empire the united complaints of His Majesty's subjects in America. Complaints which are excited by many unwarrantable encroachments and usurpations attempted to be made by the legislature of one part of the empire upon those rights which God and the laws have given equally and independently to all. To represent to His Majesty that these his states have often individually made humble application to his imperial throne to obtain, through its intervention, some redress of their injured rights, to none of which was ever even an answer condescended, humbly to hope that this their joint address, penned in the language of truth, and divested of those expressions of servility which would persuade his majesty that we are asking favors, and not rights, shall obtain from his majesty a more peaceful acceptance. And this his majesty will think we have reason to expect, when he reflects that he is no more than the chief officer of the people, appointed by the laws, and circumscribed with definite powers, to assist in working the great machine of government, erected for their use, and consequently subject to their oversight. To remind him that our ancestors, before their emigration to America, were the free inhabitants of the British dominions in Europe, and possessed a right which nature has given to all men, of departing from the country in which chance, not choice, has placed them, of going in quest of new habitations, and of there establishing new societies, under such laws and regulations as to them shall seem most likely to promote public happiness. That their Saxon ancestors had, under this universal law, in like manner left their native wilds and woods in the north of Europe, had possessed themselves of the island of Britain, then less charged with inhabitants, and had established there that system of laws which has so long been the glory and protection of that country. Nor ever was any claim of superiority or dependence asserted over them by that mother country from which they had migrated. And were such a claim made, it is believed that His Majesty's subjects in Great Britain have too firm a feeling of the rights derived to them from their ancestors to bow down the sovereignty of their state before such visionary pretensions. And it is thought that no circumstance has occurred to distinguish materially the British from the Saxon emigration. America was conquered and her settlements made and firmly established at the expense of individuals and not of the British public. Their own blood was spilt in acquiring lands for their settlement, their own fortunes expended in making that settlement effectual. For themselves they fought, for themselves they conquered, and for themselves alone they have right to hold. Not a shilling was ever issued from the public treasuries of His Majesty or his ancestors for their assistance till very late times after the colonies had become established on a firm and permanent footing. The settlements having been thus established in the wilds of America, the emigrants thought proper to adopt that system of laws under which they had hitherto lived in the mother country and to continue their union with her by submitting themselves to the same common sovereign who was thereby made the central link connecting the several parts of the empire thus newly multiplied. By solemn treaty entered into on the twelfth day of March, 1651, between the said commonwealth by their commissioners and the colony of Virginia by their house of Burgesses, it was expressly stipulated that they would have free trade as the people of England do enjoy to all places and with all nations according to the laws of that commonwealth.
but upon the restoration of his majesty king charles the second their rights of free commerce fell once more a victim to arbitrary power and by several acts of his reign as well as some of his successors the trade of the colonies was laid under restrictions that these acts prohibit us from going in search of other purchasers the surplus of our tobacco remaining after the consumption of great britain is supplied so that we must leave them with the british merchant for whatever he will please to allow us to be by him reshipped to foreign markets while he will reap the benefits of making sale of them for full value we take leave to mention to his majesty certain other acts of british parliament by which they would prohibit us from manufacturing for our own use the articles we raise on our own lands with our own labor an american subject is forbidden to make a hat for himself of the fur which he has taken perhaps on his own soil because of another act the iron which we make we are forbidden to manufacture and heavy as that article is and necessary in every branch of husbandry besides commission and insurance we are to pay freight for it to great britain and freight for it back again for the purpose of supporting not men but machines in the island of great britain one of these conclusions must necessarily follow either that justice is not the same in america as in britain or else that the british parliament pay less regard to it here than there but that we do not point out to his majesty the injustice of these acts with intent to rest on that principle the cause of their nullity the true ground on which we declare these acts void is that the british parliament has no right to exercise authority over us single acts of tyranny may be ascribed to the accidental opinion of a day but a series of oppressions begun at a distinguished period and pursued unalterably through every change of ministers too plainly prove a deliberate and systematical plan of reducing us to slavery but one other act having been a peculiar attempt must never require special mention it is entitled an act for suspending the legislature of new york one free and independent legislature hereby takes upon itself to suspend the powers of another free and independent as itself not only the principles of common sense but the common feelings of human nature must be surrendered up before his majesty's subjects here can be persuaded to believe that they hold their political existence at the will of a british parliament shall these governments be dissolved their property annihilated and their people reduced to a state of nature by a body of men whom they never saw and whom they never confided and over whom they have no powers of punishment or removal can any one reason be assigned why a hundred and sixty thousand electors in the island of great britain should give law to four millions in the states of america every individual of whom is equal to every individual of them in virtue and understanding and in bodily strength were this to be admitted instead of being a free people as we have hitherto supposed and mean to continue ourselves we should suddenly be found the slaves not of one but of a hundred and sixty thousand tyrants an act to discontinue the landing and discharging of goods wares and merchandise at the town and within the harbor of boston was passed at the last session of british parliament a large and populous town whose trade was their sole subsistence was deprived of that trade and involved in utter ruin an act of parliament was passed imposing duties on teas to be paid in america against which act the americans had protested as unlawful the east india company who till that time had never sent a pound of tea to america on their own account sent hither many shiploads of that obnoxious commodity an exasperated people who feel that they possess power are not easily restrained within limits strictly regular a number of them assembled in the town of boston threw the tea into the ocean and dispersed without doing any other act of violence 
without calling for a party accused, without asking a proof, without attempting a distinction between the guilty and the innocent, the whole of that ancient and wealthy town is in a moment reduced from opulence to beggary. Men who had spent their lives in extending the British commerce, who had invested in that place the wealth their honest endeavors had merited, found themselves and their families thrown at once on the world for subsistence by its charities. Not the hundredth part of the inhabitants of that town had been concerned in the act complained of. Many of them were in Great Britain and in other parts beyond sea, yet all were involved in one indiscriminate ruin, by a new executive power unheard of till then, that of a British Parliament. A property of the value of many millions of money was sacrificed to revenge, not repay, the loss of a few thousands. This is administering justice with a heavy hand indeed, and when is this tempest to be arrested in its course? By the Act for the Suppression of Riots and Tumults in the Town of Boston, passed also in the last session of Parliament, a murder committed there is, if the Governor pleases, to be tried in the Court of King's Bench in the island of Great Britain. The witnesses are supposed to appear at the trial. Who does His Majesty think can be prevailed on to cross the Atlantic for the sole purpose of bearing evidence to a fact? His expenses are to be borne, indeed, as they shall be estimated by a governor, but who are to feed the wife and children whom he leaves behind, who have had no other subsistence but his daily labor? And the wretched criminal, stripped of his privilege of trial by a jury of his peers, removed from the place where alone full evidence could be obtained, without money, without counsel, without friends, without exculpatory proof, is tried before judges predetermined to condemn. The cowards who would suffer a countryman to be torn from the bowels of their society, in order to be thus offered a sacrifice to parliamentary tyranny, would merit that everlasting infamy now fixed on the authors of the act. That these are the acts of power, assumed by a body of men, foreign to our constitutions, and unacknowledged by our laws, against which we do, on behalf of the inhabitants of British America, enter this our solemn and determined protest, and we do earnestly entreat His Majesty, as yet the only mediatory power between the several states of the British Empire, to recommend to His Parliament of Great Britain the total revocation of these acts, which, however nugatory they be, may yet prove the cause of further discontents and jealousies among us. That we next proceed to consider the conduct of His Majesty as holding the executive powers of the laws of these states, and mark out his deviations from the line of duty. By the Constitution of Great Britain, as well as of the several American states, His Majesty possesses the power of refusing to pass into a law any bill which has already passed the other two branches of legislature. His Majesty, however, and his ancestors, conscious of the impropriety of opposing their single opinion to the united wisdom of two houses of Parliament, while their proceedings were unbiased by interested principles, for several ages past have modestly declined the exercise of this power in that part of his empire called Great Britain. But by change of circumstances, the addition of new states to the British Empire has produced an addition of new and sometimes opposite interests. It is now, therefore, the great office of His Majesty to resume the exercise of his negative power and to prevent the passage of laws by any one legislature of the empire, which might bear injuriously on the rights and interests of another. Yet this will not excuse the wanton exercise of this power which we have seen His Majesty practice on the laws of the American legislatures. For the most trifling reasons, and sometimes for no conceivable reason at all, His Majesty has rejected laws of the most salutary tendency. The abolition of domestic slavery is the great object of desire in these colonies, where it was unhappily introduced in their infant state. But previous to the enfranchisement of the slaves we have, it is necessary to exclude all further importations from Africa 
yet are repeated attempts to effect this by prohibitions and by imposing duties which might amount to a prohibition, have been hitherto defeated by His Majesty's negative. Thus preferring the immediate advantages of a few African corsairs to the lasting interests of the American states and to the rights of human nature deeply wounded by this infamous practice. That this is so shameful an abuse of a power trusted with His Majesty for other purposes, if not reformed, would call for some legal restrictions. Shall we speak of a late instruction to His Majesty's Governor of the Colony of Virginia, by which he is forbidden to assent to any law for the division of a county, unless the new county will consent to have no representative in assembly? That colony has as yet fixed no boundary to the westward. Their western counties, therefore, are of indefinite extent. Some of them are actually seated many hundred miles from their eastern limits. Is it possible, then, that His Majesty can have bestowed a single thought on the situation of those people, who, in order to obtain justice for injuries, however great or small, must by the laws of that colony attend their county at court, at such a distance, with all their witnesses, monthly, till their litigation be determined? Or does His Majesty seriously wish, and publish it to the world, that his subjects should give up the glorious right of representation, with all the benefits derived from that, and submit themselves the absolute slaves of his sovereign will? Or is it rather meant to confine the legislative body to their present numbers, that they may be the cheaper bargain whenever they shall become worth a purchase? Since the establishment of the British Constitution, neither His Majesty nor his ancestors have exercised the power of dissolution of Parliament in the island of Great Britain. When His Majesty was petitioned by the united voice of his people there to dissolve the present Parliament, his ministers were heard to declare in open Parliament that His Majesty possessed no such power by the Constitution. But how different their language and his practice here, to declare as their duty required the known rights of their country, to oppose the usurpations of every foreign jurisdiction, to disregard the oppressive mandates of a minister or governor, have been the avowed causes of dissolving houses of representatives in America. When the representative body have lost the confidence of their constituents, when they have assumed to themselves powers which the people never put into their hands, then indeed their continuing in office becomes dangerous to the state and calls for an exercise of the power of dissolution. But your majesty, or your governors, have carried this power beyond every limit known or provided for by the laws. After dissolving one house of representatives, they have refused to call another, so that for a great length of time the legislature provided by the laws has been out of existence. Every society must at all times possess within itself the sovereign powers of legislation. While those bodies are in existence to whom the people have delegated the powers of legislation, they alone possess and may exercise those powers. But when they are dissolved by the lopping off one or more of their branches, the power reverts to the people, who may exercise it to unlimited extent, either assembling together in person, sending deputies, or in any other way they may think proper. America was not conquered by William the Norman, nor its lands surrendered to him or any of his successors. Therefore, the lands of America do not belong to the king. Early settlers, however, were convinced otherwise, and accordingly took grants of their own lands from the crown. While the crown continued to grant land at reasonable prices, there was no pressing reason to correct this error and lay it open to public view. But His Majesty has lately taken on him to increase the cost of land, making the acquisition of land much more difficult. The population of our country will grow more slowly because of this. It is time, therefore, for us to lay this matter before His Majesty, and to declare that he has no right to grant lands. From the nature and purpose of civil institutions, 
All the lands within the borders of any particular society are assumed by that society, and subject to their allotment only. This may be done by themselves, assembled collectively, or by their legislature, to whom they have delegated sovereign authority. And if they are allotted in neither of these ways, each individual of the society may appropriate to himself such lands as he finds vacant, and occupancy will give him title. In order to enforce the arbitrary measures before complained of, His Majesty has sent from time to time among us large bodies of armed forces, not made up of the people here, nor raised by the authority of our laws. Did His Majesty possess such a right as this? His Majesty has no right to land a single armed man on our shores, and those whom he sends here are liable to our laws, made for the suppression and punishment of riots, routs, and unlawful assemblies, or are hostile bodies invading us in defiance of law. When in the course of the late war it became expedient that a body of Hanoverian troops should be brought over for the defense of Great Britain, His Majesty's grandfather, our late sovereign, did not pretend to introduce them under any authority he possessed. Such a measure would have given just alarm to his subjects in Great Britain, whose liberties would not be safe if armed men of another country and of another spirit might be brought into the realm at any time without the consent of their legislature. He therefore applied to Parliament, who passed an act for that purpose, limiting the number to be brought in and the time they were to continue. In like manner is His Majesty restrained in every part of the empire. He possesses indeed the executive power of the laws in every state, but they are the laws of the particular state which he is to administer within that state, and not those of any one within the limits of another. Every state must judge for itself the number of armed men which they may safely trust among them, of whom they are to consist, and under what restrictions they shall be laid. To render these proceedings still more criminal against our laws, instead of subjecting the military to the civil powers, His Majesty has expressly made the civil subordinate to the military. But can His Majesty thus put down all law under His feet? Can He erect a power superior to that which erected Him? He has done it indeed by force, but let Him remember that force cannot give right that these are our grievances, which we have thus laid before His Majesty, with that freedom of language and sentiment which becomes a free people claiming their rights, as derived from the laws of nature, and not as the gift of their chief magistrate. Let those flatter who fear. It is not an American art. To give praise which is not due might be well for the dishonorable, but is unbecoming of those who are asserting the rights of human nature. They know, and will therefore say, that the kings are the servants, not the proprietors of the people. Open your breast, sire, to liberal and expanded thought. Let not the name of George III be a blot in the page of history. You are surrounded by British counselors, but remember that they have their own interests. You have no ministers for foreign affairs, because you have none taken from among us. It behooves you, therefore, to think and to act for yourself and your people. The great principles of right and wrong are legible to every reader. To pursue them requires not the aid of many counselors. The whole art of government consists in the art of being honest. Only aim to do your duty, and mankind will give you credit where you fail. No longer persevere in sacrificing the rights of one part of the empire to the desires of another, but be impartial and deal with all your subjects equally. Let no act be passed by any one legislature which may infringe on the rights and liberties of another. This is the important post in which fortune has placed you holding the balance of a great empire. This, sire, is the advice of your great American council, on the observance of which may perhaps depend your felicity and future fame, and the preservation of that harmony which alone can continue both to Great Britain and America the reciprocal advantages of their connection. 
It is neither our wish nor our interest to separate from her. We are willing on our part to sacrifice everything which reason can ask to the restoration of that tranquility for which all must wish. On their part, let them be ready to establish union and a generous plan. Let them name their terms, but let them be just. We accept a preferential trading relationship with Britain so long as we can provide things for their use and they make goods for our use. But let them think not to exclude us from going to other markets to dispose of those commodities which they cannot use or to supply those wants which they cannot supply. Let it not be that our properties within our own territories shall be taxed or regulated by any power on earth but our own. The God who gave us life gave us liberty at the same time. The hand of force may destroy, but cannot disjoin them. This, sire, is our last, our determined resolution, and that you will be pleased to interpose with that efficacy which your earnest endeavors may ensure, to procure redress of these our great grievances, to quiet the minds of your subjects in British America, against any apprehensions of future encroachment, to establish fraternal love and harmony through the whole empire, and that these may continue to the latest ages of time, is the fervent prayer of all British America.